praise the Lord. Aren't you thankful for the goodness of the Lord? Amen. He's been so merciful to us. The least we can do is lift our voice and give him praise. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Acts, Acts chapter 27. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be reading from verse 9, but I'm going to be in this chapter uh, most of the morning. Uh, you, you might want to follow along with me or keep your finger there. We'll go back to it again in a little while. But starting with Acts chapter 27 and verse 9. Thank you so much for your faithfulness to the house of God. Amen. I, I, it makes my heart glad when you're here on a Sunday morning to worship the Lord. Amen. If you have the scripture, would you say amen? Let's read it together. Or let me read it to you. It says, Now, when much time was spent, and when sailing was dangerous, because the fast was now already past, Paul admonished them, said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only the lading in the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. I want to preach for a few moments from this thought. Beware the master of the ship. Beware the master of the ship. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I thank you for the great grace of God that's flowing and moving in this place. And I know in the next few minutes you want to speak into this place. And I'm asking you, God, that you just move me out of the way, Lord, and let your spirit have its way in this house right now, God. I'm asking, Lord, to speak into every heart and every life, Lord. Let us feel your touch and your presence. We need a word from you today. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. The final two chapters of Acts deal with Paul's journey to Rome as a prisoner. And it is a fascinating and detailed report of a perilous voyage at sea. The account of that voyage is richly detailed, and the particulars of the story are consistent as you read through the book of Acts with ancient maritime practices. As a matter of fact, there was a sailor by the name of James Smith, a Scottish yachtsman and a classic scholar, and he spent years studying the narrative of this chapter of Acts and selling the route, the same route that Paul sailed himself. And he concluded that the details of the biblical account are both accurate and authentic. Paul's adventures on this final journey began when Festus decided that Paul must be sent to Rome. And Paul, along with a group of other prisoners, is placed under the authority of a centurion by the name of Julius. And together with their Roman guard, they set out on a lengthy journey that will involve passage on two different merchant ships. The first ship was one of the smaller ships that sailed the coast and, and was commonly used to transport passengers and cargo. And that ship had probably sailed down the coast with its cargo and was now empty and was returning home empty. And that allowed it to be able to take on a large group of Roman soldiers and their prisoners. The first portion of that journey was uneventful. They sailed up the Phoenician coast to Sidon. There they rested and resupplied before casting off again. The next phase of the journey, the writer of Acts says that they sailed under Cyprus. That means that they sailed 
in the lee of Cyprus. That means they sailed next to the land, allowing Cyprus to help protect them from the wind. It was getting late in the year. It was getting late to travel by sea, and winter was a very dangerous season on those seas, and so they they chose a route that would protect them from the wind. Then they journeyed north and west along the coast of Silica and Pamphylia, and their destination was Myra, a major port city. And they, they pulled into Myra, and it took them about two weeks. And the winds were troublesome, and they, they, they had a difficult journey. And it was, took a lot longer than it should have taken. But finally, they made safe passage to the port of Myra. At Myra, they changed ships. The centurion, Julius, found an Alexandrian ship that was sailing to Rome. It was probably a grain ship. It probably was hauling Egyptian wheat. And by taking on a group of centurions, the master of the ship was taking on an insurance policy. Once his ship was flying under the banner of Rome, Rome would be responsible for all of its cargo, not just the prisoners that Rome was transporting, but for the grain also. And so Julius transferred Paul and his fellow prisoners to that Alexandrian ship, and they set sail on what should have been the final leg of their journey. But this time the sailing became more difficult. The prevailing winds were from the west and northwest, and after leaving Myra, the ship was more directly exposed to the wind. That made sailing to Rome very difficult. The biblical account says that it took them many days of slow sailing to make it to Sinaitis, which was roughly a two-day journey under favorable conditions. At that point, the seasonally bad weather forced them to take an alternative sailing route, and they sailed south to the eastern tip of Crete, then headed under the island, traveling in its lee to help keep that strong northwest wind off of them. That route brought them to the port of Fair Haven on the coast of Crete. And to understand what is happening as the story unfolds, you have to understand that sailing on the Mediterranean Sea was a dicey prospect between the middle of September and the middle of November. But after mid-November, it became nearly impossible. For that reason, ships did not sail the Mediterranean between mid-November and early February, all shipping traffic was shut down for the winter. The various parties in this sailing expedition have recognized by this point that they will not make it to Rome before the weather shuts them down. They'll have to winter somewhere. They're going to have to pull into an arbor, and there they're going to have to take their boat and prepare it to face the, the wind and the waves of winter. And they're faced with a choice. With the weather getting worse... And time running out, Julius has to make a decision. The decision rests in Julius' hands because Rome is now responsible for both the ship and its cargo. And since the ship is, is sailing to Rome, bearing him and his men, he, he has the sole right to make the decision. There were two choices. They could hunker down in the port of Fair Haven for the winter, or they could press on to a more favorable port called Phoenix, and they could winter there. Now, neither was an ideal situation, because both choices were full of danger. 
If they stayed at Fair Haven, the harbor there was too small to truly protect the ship. And the, those three weather-beaten months of winter, the, the bay of that harbor was open to the sea, and their ship would have been battered by those terrible winds all winter long. But Phoenix was a sheltered port. If you could make Phoenix, the winter would not be a problem. You could rest there and wait for fair weather. And with time running out and with winter at hand, that's a main reason that there was a debate because there was a safe place and there was the place where they were. And if the safety of the ship and the cargo was guaranteed at a place like Fair Haven, then Julius never would have debated. He never would have even considered leaving the limited safety of that harbor in this treacherous time of year. But with a much fairer port, only a day's journey away in fair weather. A decision had to be made. And it had to be made quickly because the situation was only getting worse. And that's where the pivotal moment of this story unfolds. As Julius weighs his options, a prisoner requests an audience. That prisoner was the Apostle Paul. He was not a seafaring man. He didn't have the knowledge of the sea that others had. But he had some advice for the centurion. The soft-spoken Paul speaking with the assurance of a man that is confident in what he's saying advises against setting sail. The book of Acts puts it this way. He said, I perceive that this journey, this voyage will be with hurt and much damage. There's going to be danger. There's going to be shipwreck. There's, it's not just going to be the loss of your cargo. It could potentially be the loss of our lives. No doubt Paul's warning unsettled the centurion as Julius wrestled with what may have been the most important decision in his career. However, there was another voice that spoke up to calm the fears of the centurion. He was the master of the ship. And you've got to understand, he has sailed this way before. This is his business. This is his livelihood. He is a nautical professional. He's an expert at reading the maps and gauging the weather. And he has shut himself away in his cabin, and he's gone over the charts, and he's surveyed the journals of, of past trips, uh, and he's studied everything that's gone on before, uh, and he's considered all the possibilities. Uh, he's weighed the chance of a safe passage against the danger of an unexpected storm. And in his professional opinion, he has arrived at the conclusion that the safety of the port in Phoenix is worth the risk involved. He's a professional after all. This is what he does. He weighs the risk against the reward. He, he measures, he reasons, he, he calculates, and ultimately he makes an informed decision. So he too instructs the centurion, but his advice is very different from the advice of Paul. Where Paul advises them to hunker down and wait out the winter in Fair Haven, the master of the ship advises to cast off, set sail with all due haste, and make for the safety of Phoenix. And even as he was making his case, almost as if on cue, 
the wind changed directions. The Bible said a favorable southern wind began to blow softly across the port of Fairhaven. That was the crux of the issue. On the one hand, there was the master of the ship. and On the other hand, there was Paul, a prisoner of Rome. One has the knowledge and experience, and the other has just a word of warning. One makes perfect sense and can present the, the evidence to back up what he's saying. He, he sailed this way before. He knows his business. He, he knows his trade. He knows what his ship can do. And all of his experience, and all of his rationale, and all of his thinking, and all of his education, and all of his ability tells him uh, that the best thing to do is set sail as quickly as possible. And the wind agrees. Now there's a south wind blowing. Now the situation all of a sudden looks favorable. But then there's the other voice. And he simply says, I perceive. He has no evidence. He has no charts and graphs. No anecdotal stories to tell. He's never sailed this way before. At this point, he, he can't even say an angel of the Lord has stood beside me and told me. All he has is a feeling. It's a still, small voice that's whispered in his ear. He can't present any rationale. He can't justify his advice. He, he can't go to, to records and science and get it to back him up. He just says, I perceive that there is danger ahead. And all of a sudden, poor Julius finds himself in a difficult place. His career may be on the line. Surely it would reflect poorly on his record if he lost that ship and its cargo because of a reckless decision. But the decision doesn't seem that reckless. The master of the ship says, don't worry. Set sail with haste. But there's that other voice that nags at his conscience. I perceive. I perceive. There's something about that warning that has the ring of authenticity. It doesn't make sense to the rational mind. It doesn't make sense to the charts and the graphs and the weather reports and the journals and, and everything that the, the master of the ship can amass is the evidence that the journey is okay. The, the, the risk is, is tolerable. It's favorable conditions. We can make it. But it resonates in the spirit. So he stands at a crossroads. That's where I want to focus this morning because ultimately we all stand in the same place. There are always two voices speaking into your life at every crossroads, with every critical decision, with every choice you make. There are always two advisors on hand. The first is the master of the ship. He brings rational reasoning. He operates on his years of experience. He makes calculated predictions. He weighs the risk against the reward. And for him, the reward is everything. After all, that's how he makes his living. That's what he does. He flaunts the danger. He runs between the raindrops. He beats the odds. 
And having done that successfully more times than he can recall, the decision is an easy one for him. And he encourages you to follow your gut. Pursue your heart's desire. Do whatever feels right to you. He's all about rationality. He's all about reason. He's all about what the science says. He's all about what the journals say. He's all about what the evidence says. And he encourages you to do that which seems to be the natural choice. What seems to be the reasonable thing. What appeals to the fleshly man and the carnal man and seems to be the, the best thing for you. Then on the other hand, there is that still small voice that speaks in a gentle whisper that resonates in your soul. He's not the master of the ship. No. He doesn't sail the seven seas. He's the master of the wind. And his is not the voice of reason. His is the voice of revelation. He sounds the note of caution that stands at odds with all of your rationale. He's that nagging voice that gently nudges you to take the road less traveled. He's that voice that attempts to persuade you to make the difficult decision to abandon the broad and easy way and embrace the narrow and more difficult way. See, this is the crux of the matter. Sooner or later, all of life resolves itself into the same dilemma that Julius faced that morning in Fairhaven. That desperate struggle to decide which voice will you listen to? The master of the ship or the master of the wind? It's a struggle that is as old as life itself. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. On the one hand, there's the gentle voice of the Creator, the one who has given them life and complete liberty. He doesn't ask for much. As a matter of fact, He only restricts them from one thing. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. He, he doesn't give a justification. He doesn't present any rationale. He doesn't weigh the pros and the cons. He doesn't give any evidence for why they should do what he says. He simply speaks with the understated authority of one who knows. And he sounds the warning that resonates with the soul. On the other hand, there's the seductive voice of the serpent, that master of the ship, with all of his reasoning and validation. He doesn't just entice Eve to make the wrong choice. He reasons with her. He provides her with justification. He alone shares with her the real power of that tree, and he entices her with a seductive promise. You can be just like God. You can know the difference between good and evil. And as a fair south wind blows across that garden of paradise, the serpent presents an argument that appeals to the carnal man. And in that critical moment, Eve ignores the warning that only made sense in a spiritual context and chooses instead to walk by sight, to follow her flesh, to listen to the voice of reason, to listen 
to the voice that seems to be the authority on the subject. And Eve abandons the walk of faith and chooses instead the instant gratification that the serpent promises. Oh, what a fateful decision. What a tremendous impact it has had on all of us today. Now, I could go through the Word of God, and I could present you with a host of examples just like that. Places where uh, moments where two voices stood in opposition one to another at, at critical junctures in people's lives, and the future was weighed in the balance, and a choice was made between the voice of reason and the voice of revelation. But I'd rather simply sound a warning this morning. Beware the master of the ship. His advice always sounds good. His reasoning is always sound. His evidence is always appealing. But beware, because sooner or later, He's going to steer you into a storm that he can't get you out of. Sooner or later, he's going to make shipwreck of your faith. It may not happen the first time that you follow his promptings over the urge of the Spirit. It, it may not happen every time that you ignore the soft, gentle voice of the Holy Ghost to embrace the sure and confident voice of the shipmaster. But listen to what I'm telling you. If you keep yielding to your flesh and carnal wisdom and ignoring the warning of the Spirit, eventually it's going to cost you more than you want to pay. I can promise you that. If you keep following the advice of the shipmaster, sooner or later he's going to take you into a situation that you can't get yourself out of and that he can't get you out of. Because here's the unvarnished truth about the shipmaster. Expert reasoning is not as safe as it sounds. The master of the ship can make his calculations. He can weigh the risks against the rewards. And he can make an informed decision, an educated guess, if you will. But when you strip away all the pretense, when you get rid of all the human reasoning and rationale, all he can do is guess. It's an informed guess. It's an educated guess. It's based on all kinds of evidence. But he can't look into the future. He can't tell you what tomorrow holds. Once he cast off his anchor and set sail, he's at the mercy of the wind. Oh, but the master of the wind, he controls the storm. He, he knows the future. He, he tells the wind when to blow. He tells the sun when to hide its face. He governs the storms. Uh, he governs the fair weathers uh, and the foul seas. Uh, he's in charge of it all. And his warning may not make sense. It may not always please the flesh. It may not even be something that your human rationale can understand. But let me warn you in this house on a Sunday morning, uh, you better take notice when the master of the wind begins to whisper a word of caution. Because, honey, he's not guessing. 
He knows what's coming. He knows what's around the bend. His voice is not the voice of rational uh, rationalization. His voice is the voice of revelation. He knows what he's talking about. I heard the story of a man who was traveling through unfamiliar territory. It's the author of a book, R. Kent Hughes, and it was his dad. He said that when his dad came to a river that blocked his path, it was frozen over, but he had no idea how thick the ice was. And recognizing the risk of an uncertain crossing, he eased out onto the ice on all fours, and gingerly he began to feel his way across the river, listening diligently for the first sound of the crackle of ice so he'd know when to retreat. And as he's measuring carefully, thing he can to, to assure his safety, all of a sudden he hears a terrible racket, looks back the way he's come, and here comes a wagon pulled by four horses, and the driver is whipping them along in a real good clip. And they race right across the frozen river, barely missing the nearly prostrate traveler. You see, the difference is simple. The wayfaring traveler, he was guessing. He was taking a calculated risk. He was doing everything he could to stack things in his favor. But the guy in the buggy, he knew how thick the ice was. He knew where safety was. Listen, if you can trust anything in this world, my friend, you can't trust your flesh. You can't trust your reasoning. You can't trust your rationale. You can't trust science. You can't trust what the doctor says. You can't trust what the lawyer says. You can't trust what the politician says. But you can trust what the master of the wind says. It's a fact. He who frames your every moment. He whose eye is always on you. He who orders your very footsteps. You can trust that still, small voice of the Spirit. Because He's not guessing. He knows. He knows what tomorrow holds. He knows what's just around the bend. He knows what's going to happen. It was an unexpected turn of events. The wind shifted suddenly after they set sail. From the south to the northeast. In ancient times, they had a name for that disastrous wind. They called it Eurachlodon. Mariners today still call it by the same name. When you translate the Greek into the English, it means nor'easter. And it is that storm that haunts every seafaring man's nightmares. Though they cast off in fair seas, Julius and a skilled crew soon ran into a nor'easter. A wind of hurricane force slammed into that ship with such impact that it was immediately blown off course. But what made that wind so destructive was the fact that it would not let up. It soon became obvious to them that reaching Phoenix would be impossible. The Bible says that the ship could not head into the wind. 
That means they were not able to adjust their sails to maintain their desired course. Instead, they let her drive, which means they shortened the sails and put themselves at the mercy of the wind. And the wind drove them hard and far. There was little they could do to resist it. At one point during a lull in the storm while on the lee of an island, they undergirded the ship, which literally means that they bound that wooden vessel together with ropes. Huge ropes were passed under the bow of the ship and back up and attached to devices on each side of the ship. And they were tightened as tight as they could so that the planks of the ship would be held together against the seas and the wind. When sailors employed such measures, it meant that they were afraid that the ship was going to come apart. That's how bad the storm was. Night and day passed with alarming frequency. What should have been a one-day journey stretched on for 14 days. As they endured the wind and they floundered in the waves, twice they attempted to lighten the load, casting off most of their cargo for the first time, and then casting off all the ship's excess tackle on the second occasion. But things were just getting worse. The storm got so bad that day could not be distinguished from night. The clouds got so thick and the storm got so dense that for many days they saw neither the sun nor the stars. That's a very frightening prospect for men who navigated by the stars. They had no idea where they were. They had no idea what direction they were going. They had no idea where they might end up. They lost sight of their frame of reference. With no stars, there was no way to know. They were at the mercy of the wind. The Bible tells us that at this point, they lost hope. The situation was critical. The outlook was dismal. The circumstance was hopeless. I'm going to start reading at verse 20, Brother Dennis. It says, And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, no small tempest laid on us. All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you, to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told unto me. Howbeit we shall be cast upon an island, or we must be cast upon a certain island. It goes on to tell us that when the fourteenth night they were they found came, they found themselves in shallow seas and, and fearing that they may fall on rocks. 
the sailors began to gather their boats, their escape vessels, and they, they wished for the daytime when they could finally let them down and escape. And when the morning arrived, it found them lowering the boats down the side. And, and verse 30 says, And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they let down the boats into the sea, under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the four ships. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boats, let her fall into the sea. In the middle of the storm, the master of the wind spoke yet again. And this time, they did the wise thing. This time, they listened to the master of the wind. It's great comfort to me on this Sunday morning to know that God doesn't give up easy. You, you may find yourself in the storm. You may find yourself in circumstances that are beyond your control. Uh, and maybe you got there because you ignored the still small voice of the Spirit and followed the desire of your carnal man. Or maybe, maybe you're there by no fault of your own. You were just a passenger subject to the whim of the weather. Whether the situation, whatever it is, whether you got there by your own hand or you find yourself there of no fault of your own, I can tell you that in the middle of your storm, there are going to be two voices speaking to you. And I want to ask you to remember Julius. Beware the master of the ship. Beware the voice of reason. Beware the voice of evidence. Listen instead to the master of the wind. He knows what he's doing. And you can trust him. They're the most famous verses in the book of Proverbs, and they are for good reason. And I will close with them. They impart the most important piece of advice you'll ever encounter in Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 it says trust in the Lord with all thine heart lean not unto thine own understanding in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths would you stand with me this morning I come to this pulpit to encourage someone to trust in the Lord with your whole heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on the voice of reason. Don't lean on those things that, that speak and tell you, uh, this is what the doctor said. This is what the lawyer said. This is what the newspaper said. Listen for that still, small voice of the Spirit. What's God saying? Don't get caught up in listening to the voice of your flesh and all of its reasoning and rationale because it will always lead you astray. When you start saying, this is what I think and this is what I feel and, this is, and you start rationalizing and reasoning instead of listening to the voice of the Spirit, you're headed for shipwreck, my friend. But I come to caution you. Beware the master of the ship. Listen. He's speaking right now. The master of the wind. 
He's in this place. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 from another translation says it this way. It says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not. I'm sorry. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. My mind goes straight to the King James. That's what I have memorized. But the New Living Translation says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't depend on your own understanding. It's verse 6 that I wanted to focus on. He says, seek His will in all you do. And He will show you which path to seek. There it is. Seek His will. He'll show you which way you should go. The problem is not that the master of the wind isn't speaking into your life. The problem is you haven't taken the time to listen to Him. Somewhere below the roar of the wind the crash of the waves, all the voices of authority speaking into your life. There's that still, small, gentle voice of the Spirit. The Holy Ghost is moving across this place right now on a Sunday morning. And I come to encourage you, take a moment, tune in to Him. Seek His will. And He will show you the way. That's as simple as it gets. Whatever you do, beware the master of the ship. For just a few moments on a Sunday morning, I want to encourage you to ignore the howling wind, to ignore the beating waves. Ignore the voice of the ship's master and tune your ear to that still, small voice, the voice of the Spirit. Forsake your own understanding. Don't lean on what makes sense to you. Put your trust in Him. Seek Him. He'll show you the way. Put your trust in the Master of the wind. I I feel very strongly in my spirit. I did before I came to this pulpit today. I'm reaching for two different kinds of people this morning, and both of them are in this place. There's some of you that you're in the storm or about to sail into the storm because of decisions you've made. You've ignored the gentle voice of the Spirit and you've, you've made some poor choices. They're going to put you in bad places. There are others, though, that you're in the storm through no fault of your own. You find yourself in a circumstance that's beyond your control. And the voice of reason, the voice of authority rationalization strikes fear in your heart tries to give you direction and do what seems right and do what makes sense and and this is the way it has to be because this is the way it's always been but I feel the anointing of the Holy Ghost telling me to tell you to tune that out for just a moment and listen to the voice of the Spirit because the master of the wind is speaking in this place. There's an angel that'll stand beside you in the middle of your storm and speak to your heart. There's a word that'll come from heaven in the middle of your circumstance. No matter how you got there, no matter which situation you're in, this morning you need to take a few moments. You need to turn your heart towards heaven. You need to surrender your will to him and seek his face. Let him show you where the next step lies. These altars are open. I'm asking you to come for a few moments on a Sunday morning. Listen for the sound.
the voice of the master of the wind. He's speaking right now. Jesus.